0: Welcome to the Foundation Podcast, your weekly insight into the most significant conservative ideas being discussed right now all across America. From policymakers to grassroots activists, and from thought leaders to elected leaders, each week we bring you the people and the ideas shaping the American Republic. Brought to you with a dose of Texas, where Lone Star Liberty shines brighter than ever. Well, thank you, folks, for joining yet another episode of the Foundation Podcast. You are in for a treat today, and I really mean that because our guest is, I think, one of the visionaries of the conservative movement, someone who's been on the inside of the political scene working at Capitol Hill, someone who's been outside the, the, the politics of it and worked in public policy, and someone who now is really helping to drive the narrative. Our guest this week is Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor and head of Strategic Reach for the Deseret News. Boyd, thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, great to be with you today. Always good to to have elevated conversations. We'll take it.
0: And you know, down here in Texas, we far more enjoy talking to a friend from Utah than we do someone from D.C.,
1: I think, isn't that true everywhere in America?
0: Actually, that's probably a 95% approval rating on that statement, right? That's right. Well, look, I I meant what I said. You are a, a longtime friend of the Texas Public Policy Foundation and vice versa. We have a lot of overlapping social circles mutual friend running for Congress. Of course, we won't get into that. So we keep this a 501c3 friendly conversation. <laughs> Great but, restraint. Yeah, Yes, well, it's hard. It's hard when we have good people saying yes to the political process. It's really important. And, and where we're going today in terms of our conversation is talking about something that you have spent a lot of your life working on, and that is making American society and American politics more civil.
1: It's such an important part because I think it really is core and and central to who we are as a nation. Uh, We Americans are not angry by nature, we, we get angry, we get riled up, we protest, we shout, uh, but then we move on. And I think the, the thing that we've lost over the last few years is that we've, we've allowed ourselves to kind of wallow in the, the anger and the angst. And we've allowed the, you know, the angry and the strident voices from, from really both ends of the political spectrum to, to keep us a safe distance from having the kinds of conversations we need to have to actually solve the problems for the nation
0: and you know as as you and i record this conversation today it was just this week that justice anthony kennedy announced his retirement from the supreme court and i spent more time than i should have late yesterday looking at acquaintances who are on the other side of the political spectrum being vile and vulgar in their response to justice kennedy himself as well as the court and i just walked away thinking man all of us need to do a better job in how we speak about politics and policy.
1: Yeah, uh, it, It's so true. And, and one of the things I, I spent the afternoon yesterday, kind of doing similar things and responding to similar things, but, but I actually had this moment where I thought, okay, let's, let's look at his last month. So justice Kennedy, who is always talked about as the swing vote and usually in very politically hot issues, look at his last four weeks on the Supreme court and the messages that he sent to the nation. So, start with the uh, Colorado cake baker case. In, in his opinion, he focused on the fact that how we talk about these things matters and how we treat people we disagree with matters. And that was the substance of, of his ruling was, hey, you cannot treat people this, with this kind of disdain. You cannot attack people uh, and, and browbeat them and, and talk down to them because of their beliefs. And then look at the the California abortion clinic case. Uh, And he he really said, you know what, speech, free speech is free speech. Even the speech to say nothing, if it violates what you believe, we have to do better. And then in the in the travel ban, uh, he was the concurrent opinion there. And what he really said uh, to the president and to all of us is, we can do better in terms of how we talk about these things. So how we talk about these things matter. and so and so while many people will will always focus uh, Justice Kennedy's legacy on being the swing vote, I think the last message he sent sent to the nation in these opinions may have been the most important for us moving forward,
0: yeah, that's interesting. You said that as I was driving to work this morning. In enjoying the silence, not listening to the radio, not having any. Fun <laughs> good talking, for you. Just unusual, yeah. That's as I, as I tell my kids, this is a good thing to aspire to is silence. Uh, actually, we come back to that. I think it's an important part of being civil. But I was thinking about Kennedy's legacy, and and like a lot of conservatives, I have found him confounding. And and yet, I thought, gosh, in the last several weeks, he has sent a really important signal. That's been obviously important to his legacy. I'm hopeful important to civil society. I think you summarized that really well. So looking forward, what do you expect about the nomination fight? And I'm afraid that it will be a fight. What's sort of the best case scenario for those of us who love liberty and love conservatism? And what's the worst case scenario?
1: So I, I do think there, there will be a lot of the political uh, elements tied into it, sadly, as there, there always is. Um, but I do think there, there are some interesting uh, dynamics out there. Obviously, on the, the list of, of 24 justices that he'll be pulling from, uh, there, there aren't a lot of bad ones on there. So I think that's a, that's a good sign. Um, I do think there's some interesting political plays. Uh, and obviously, my, uh, my former boss and uh, someone who I think everyone respects, Senator Lee, might actually have a, a very interesting... Uh, path. Uh, and the reason for that, while he hasn't been a jurist or sat on a bench anywhere, uh, he does have something that none of the other uh, potential nominees have, and that is relationships uh, in the Senate that are actually based on civility. So if you just kind of do the quick score check, uh, you know, you think, okay, he's worked uh, with liberal Diane Feinstein on indefinite detention legislations, again, around the law and the constitution. He, he has great working relationships with liberal Dick Durbin and Cory Booker as they've done work on criminal justice reform, uh, has tremendous uh, conversations with Pat Leahy on uh, things around patent reform. And so he has this very very unique uh, combination where, because he focuses in a civil way on principle first and constitutional principles specifically. Uh, I think it would be very hard for some of those senators to stand in front of a a bank of cameras and say, no, I I just can't vote for Senator Lee. You also have a lot of red state Democrats uh, like Joe Manchin, who has a good relationship with Senator Lee, Heidi Heitkamp from uh, Dakota. Uh, So there there are some interesting dynamics from a purely political play uh, that do make uh, Senator Lee, uh, I think, extra intriguing uh, when it comes to what the president might do here.
0: Oh, it's, it's interesting that you, you offered that perspective. I was going to ask you about it y- yesterday. One of our interns was asking me, well, Kevin, do, do you think that Senator Lee actually has a chance? And of course, whatever analysis I gave him came with a caveat, I don't know. So yeah. I might not be the right guy to be asking. <laughs> but what I think is that it's as, as a colleague of the Senate and the way that Senator Lee has conducted himself, that at the very least, some of the red state Democrats who are colleagues and with whom he has worked would have a really hard time objecting. That's right. And, and, and who knows? I mean, you, you and I share a worldview. We, we understand that the most important things we encounter each day are, are divine. And, and we have an obligation to conduct ourselves that reflects how, how we are made and the image and likeness of God. And, and I think people who are not Christians could hopefully respect that about us. But the, the point is that Senator Lee has conducted himself in a way that is very much like the civility of our founders and of some of the great generations of civic leaders we've had in our country's history.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, uh, and, and his brother Tom who is, uh, on the Utah Supreme court, uh, is, is not a step behind in terms of that. So interesting to have two brothers from the same state, uh, on the short list there in terms of, uh, in terms of that, but it does come down to that, that approach that, uh, it, it is the divine uh, and that ability to look at uh, faith as a dimension of diversity, right. uh, I think, is is something that we often miss. We talk about diversity in terms of race and gen, gender and, and sexual orientation and so on and all of those elements which are part of the diversity that makes America extraordinary. But it's also important to remember that faith is a dimension of diversity. Uh, And I think there's a a growing groundswell around that concept. Uh, There's some very interesting things happening, even in Silicon Valley, around faith as a dimension of diversity. Uh, And the the highest court in the land is going to be front and center on a lot of those issues moving forward.
0: I think that's so true. And in, in fact, I, I think for the next generation that'll be one of the important questions that is the the place of faith in the public square. As I tell people here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, we, we tend in terms of our, our policy issues gravitate toward policies that are measured by money by how much money the state of texas is spending or not in at the federal level our criminal justice work of course often defined by the number of prisons we're closing but ultimately the reason we do that work is to make sure that we're enhancing the dignity of the human person and i think the more that we can talk about that as conservatives regardless of the specific policy area in which we're having that or for which we're having that conversation the better off we are
1: that's uh no question about it and and that is how we talk about things Absolutely matters. And and we can do that. And and I think part of it, I I think there is a a growing need out there for for conservatives in particular to be confident in their principles. uh, that, That we don't have to go to the bombast and we don't have to go to the personal attacks and melting down somebody's Twitter feed or blowing up their Facebook page because we know the principles work. And so we should function from a position of strength, a and, and and there's a difference. There's a difference from functioning from a position of confidence versus a position of arrogance. Mm-hmm. And I think, one, arrogance is not a conservative value, so we should avoid that at all costs anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we have confidence in who we are and confidence in the principles that we espouse, uh, we can lead some very important discussions for the country in a way that the country can actually engage uh, and and move forward in a positive way
0: well that's right and 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 often on this podcast we talk about the the joyfulness of conservatives our another visionary i think of the movement in arthur brooks talks about the conservative heart being the joyful heart mm-hmm. and 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 rather than taking some arrogance in in the fact that we're, those of us who describe ourselves as conservatives are kind of hardwired toward that joy, we really un- need to understand that we have this obligation to share that with others. And if we're sharing joy with others, it, it, it can't at all be ugly or, or, yes. or arrogant.
1: Yes. In fact, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Arthur over the last two years, uh, he said that more than we have a political polarization problem in America, we have a contempt Problem in America. And he defined contempt as the belief in the worthlessness of another individual. And think of how often we do that. If, if we make someone who disagrees with us worthless, then we are completely justified in blowing up their Twitter feed <laughs> or, or saying awful things about them, and we can still sleep at night. Uh, and so we, we have to respond to that in a different way. We have to cure our crisis of contempt. Uh, and of course, the, the Dalai Lama had the, the the best response to that: of how do you cure contempt? Uh, it's it's kindness, warm heartedness, uh, yeah. treating each other as your your brothers and sisters. They're not the government's brothers and sisters; they're are our brothers and sisters, and and we need to act accordingly, from the federal level down to the state level, and especially in our neighborhoods and communities.
0: Oh, that's that's so well said. I'm I'm sure in your previous role as chief of staff for Senator Lee and. Being president of the Sutherland Institute in Salt Lake City, that you encountered situations when some of our brothers and sisters made our own civility sort of difficult to implement. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's right, and I think that's
1: the real test. You know, it, it's easy when everything is going well. Uh, the test is when when people speak ill of you. Uh, we we do have to recognize that it say it says far more about them than it does about us. Uh, I think there was a. Uh, 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 an account of of General Grant, uh, and he was asked his opinion of a of a certain man that he had a lot of public <laughs> heated conversations with, and and Grant responded and said, "I think he's a good man with a good heart, trying to do what he believes is best." And the person responded and said, "Well, he doesn't feel that way about you, and that's not what he says about you in public." And, and Grant responded. You asked me about my opinion of him, mm-hmm. not his opinion of me. And we all need to to focus on that because for the most part, people are good. Uh, there's extraordinary people across the political spectrum uh, and all deserve the the kind of treatment uh, that we would give to to our brother or sister.
0: Well, it's so true. In fact, I was talking to one of our our senior policy experts here who was waiting for thirteen hours yesterday at the Texas legislature to testify in, in one of these interim committees, really important subject, healthcare, in particular, yeah. Medicaid reform. And and this policy expert just conducts himself with the greatest professionalism. He's a, a retired doctor. And so he has that that fraternal care for anyone he encounters. So as I was talking to him this morning, he reminded me, that I was violating my own rule about not questioning intentions. And I said, well, someone was just out to get you. And he said, no, no, no. He said, everyone was busy. It was just getting late. He said, we'll just get back at it today. And I I thought, what a great reminder that in, in addition to the rule of not questioning others' intentions that we also cultivate in our families, among our friends, and, and, and in our cases, our professional organizations, the spirit of the fraternal correction that mm. and sometimes those of us who are in leadership roles violate that rule. And we need to hear it from either a senior colleague or our most junior colleague.
1: Yeah, that's right. And being willing to hear that from all points of the compass uh, is important for all of us.
0: Yeah, it really is. So why don't you tell us a little bit about or a lot, if you'd like the the current work you're doing for Deseret News and how you ended up in that position based on your professional experience up to this point?
1: Sure. The uh, my 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 wife likes to say that my career has had a certain staccato effect to
0: it. So, I love
1: it. It <laughs> makes it sound a little more noble. Uh, I you know I spent my first twenty plus years doing international business consulting, a lot of strategy and communication pieces. Uh, then we we moved back to Utah, and and this is one of those. Be careful what neighborhood you move into. Uh, we ended up living uh, four houses down from this attorney guy, uh, lawyer named Mike Lee. Uh, and he was just attorney Mike Lee at the time, but but we got to know the Lees of, and a great love and respect there. They moved out. He went to clerk for Justice Alito uh, on the Supreme Court. And, uh, and then when he decided to do something crazy and run for the Senate in 2010, he, he asked me to come do the strategy and the communications pieces. So we did that for 2010. And, He won, and I very wisely went back to to business consulting, and and that was working out great uh, for about a year. Uh, I was actually sitting uh, in an airport getting ready to fly over to Bangkok to give a uh, leadership speech over there, and the phone rang. It was now Senator Lee, and uh, we just kind of chit-chatted. We're catching up on family and all of those things, And, uh, and then all of a sudden, it was like I could hear him in stereo. I said Senator, where are you? <laughs> he says, oh, I'm at the airport waiting for a flight. And I, I turned around and we were literally sitting back to back oh, uh, my at the gate. And Meant as my be. wife Debbie always says, uh, that's when he sucked you back into the vortex. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we did the chief of staff thing uh, for a bit. And and when my my used by date uh, as a chief of staff was was done, I came back to the state and had a great plan and was going to do mostly business consulting, a little politics, just to keep it interesting. And it it was one of those, you know, if you ever want to make God laugh, just tell him your plan for your life. Uh, No doubt. And I did that. And uh, sure enough, uh, Sutherland Institute uh, called, and that was just a a great experience to work with an extraordinary group of people uh, focused on principles and policy uh, and bringing those worlds together. Uh, And then this, again, I was very comfortable and thought, you know what, this is going to be a great decade here at at Sutherland Institute and maybe a, a nice final chapter in a career. Uh, And then uh, this unique opportunity with the Deseret News came up uh, to where we can really help nationalize some of these conversations. Utah, like Texas, is unique in that we have a great, uh, vibrant free market economy and strong institutions of civil society. Uh, So a great window out and a window in, in in terms of what's happening. And so we're working on a lot of things in terms of really stretching as as news becomes more and more of a commodity. It's really going to be who leads the discussions, who frames the conversations that we should be, happening, should be having around our kitchen table, across our back fence with our colleagues at the water cooler uh, and in the public square. And so we're going to lead a, a series of co- national conversations, and uh, we look forward to tag teaming with uh, you, good folks down in Texas, on uh, some of these efforts uh, as we bring people together to have elevated conversations about the critical issues of the day based on principle first. So well, that's uh, that's really what's driving my days.
0: No, it's it's exciting work. You know, I, I've had a lot of conversations this summer with with interns and junior policy staff who are trying to figure out what their their next Season of their professional life will be. Of course, we're always happy if they stay here at the policy foundation, but understand that most people will be called to go do something else and some of them come back. But the point was that a lot of them are thinking about taking their their legal expertise, their policy expertise, and at some point in their careers, making sure that the conservative movement has a better communications apparatus. And I, I think that that's something that we have really <laughs> missed, and, and as you would be a, a great guy to talk to about that.
1: And I will talk to <laughs> other You every can day. you can you can give them all my cell phone number and my email and, and tell them to call me because I I do think it's one of the things as conservatives. Uh, that we have not done a a great job of over the years. We're we're so eager to solve problems that sometimes we forget that there is a a process that people need to go through, uh, a feeling like they're a part of the story and feeling connected to what's going on. Uh, There's a great cause in the conservative movement. And and sometimes we forget to call people to the cause or or give Mm -hmm. them a reason uh, to engage, I mean, I, I think both political parties are doing a horrible job right now, uh, especially with millennials and and the rising generation. You know, it used to be there was at least a little cachet in being a, a card carrying Democrat or a card carrying Republican, um, but nobody's giving anyone a reason to to engage and join. And, and I think it's up to conservatives to make that case because I actually believe the millennials take a, a lot of grief. Uh, I'm I'm sort of an apologist for the a lot of the millennials.
0: Someone has to be, uh, yeah.
1: Someone has to be. Uh, and while they can be self-absorbed, they can do all of those things. They're actually more communitarian than than their parents' generation. They they do it different. You know that they, they see a problem and they'll they'll do a GoFundMe page for a, a friend in need, or they'll they'll do an ice bucket challenge to to raise money for a good cause. Uh, so they're willing to engage. And I actually think that the big challenge with millennials is it's actually the the generation a half step up who would be the natural mentors to that group. And th- that half step up group was the, the first to really be the, the me, me, me generation, and everybody's a winner and, and uh, focus on yourself. Uh, and so there's not a lot of mentoring going on there. Uh, I found millennials, if they are given the principles of leadership, they're fantastic at it. Uh, but a lot of times mm-hmm. they're just not quite sure what to do
0: yeah, it's interesting that and I, I think and and write about that issue a lot, having as as, a, as an educator by training, been involved in in uh, mentoring a lot of of younger people and it was a real privilege in every single case, but think about what I might call a crisis of mentorship. and and I think that that speaks to some of the fabrics, some of the the strands, if you will, that bind civil society together, really being frayed. I, I read often, the reread often russell kirk and in particular his essay on the 10 principles of mm. conservatism one of the first ones being that our our first habit as a conservative is to minister if you will to be friends with our neighbors i mean literally our neighbors the person living in the house next door the people living That's on right. the block the, the if you're in a subdivision and that if we if we fail at that that we're really failing at being conservatives because being conservative, as Arthur Brooks says, is, is, is being to be joyful, to be concerned about the other, to, of course, make sure that there is incentive and all of those things that we want to implement in, in public policy, but ultimately to be present to the people who are literally right in front of us. And I think as conservatives, we often fail to do that. It,
1: it's often easier to get outraged about something happening in Washington uh, or even halfway around the globe than it is to walk across the street and help your neighbor. And the thing we all have to recognize is that far more important than what's gonna happen in the, the marbled hallways of Congress today uh, is gonna to be what's happening uh, in, our, in our living rooms uh, and, and in our, around our kitchen tables. Uh, it's gonna be the, uh, the teacher who stays after to help a, a student that's struggling. It's gonna be a, a pastor uh, or a priest or a rabbi, you know, working with a, a struggling soul. It's going to be someone reaching out to a, a homeless person. Uh, it's going to be someone who's going to put their arm around someone struggling with opioid addiction and pointing just a better way. The The greatest components of this nation uh, really happen in small and seemingly insignificant moments of a pretty ordinary day living. And that's, to me, what it means to be an American, is is that we're willing to do that, that we stand with each other, that we are, you know, American exceptionalism. Uh, I wrote a piece last uh, 4th of July uh, on American exceptionalism and that it's not a rags to riches story. It's a rags to enriching others story. So it's it's not about the mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey's and the Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates um it, it's about people who make a difference and and while those famous people are are great and important their stories are inspiring you know it's it's the it's the mother who who starts a, a business in her garage so she can help send her son to college that's an American exceptionalism story uh, in fact one of the most exceptional moments I've ever had so I I'm gonna do a, a confession here on uh, on the podcast uh, and that is I I'm a very early morning person uh, but occasionally I would uh, stop, I shouldn't say occasionally, regularly I would stop at a local gas station <laughs> uh, at very early in the morning. And there's an, an interesting collection of humanity that amasses yes, itself there at is. that moment. And you've got, you know, you've got doctors in scrubs and you've got uh, construction workers with muddy boots and you've got some kids that are kind of bleary eyed and, and everybody's grabbing whatever sugar or caffeinated <laughs> component they're going to get and they stand in line. Uh, But at this particular gas station, uh, Mary was the cash register person, Mm -hmm. and Mary was extraordinary. Now, Mary was working the 12 midnight to 8 a.m. shift and clearly had had her share of challenges in life. But what she could do at that hour of the morning, nobody would leave. I mean, it's a 37-second transaction, (laughs) <laughs> and she changed more days by her smile, by the questions she would ask. She knew everybody's name and everybody's family and what they were working on and where they were going. And I, I remember one morning, I, I was standing in line, head down, pretty grumpy, had a tough day ahead. Uh, and then as I walked away, I realized I felt better. And I looked back, and I thought, holy cow. And I just, I stood there. I stood in the gas station for about 15 minutes and just watched people move through the line and interact with Mary. And again, it's a 10 to 37 second transaction, but people left smiling, laughing, head up, a little more pep in their step. And I thought, holy cow, here is Mary working the midnight to 8 a.m. shift at a gas station, and she is doing more to change individual lives than any member of Congress, any That's member right. of a state legislature, any bus- anyone in the business community she's making a difference because she's treating everybody in a most extraordinary way. And to me, that is the heart and soul of American exceptionalism.
0: Oh, that's what a great story. I, I, thanks for sharing that. I, I think often about whatever professional, whatever profession people have that we we can take that work. And we of course ought to be excellent at it in terms of, of how that's measured professionally, but it, at least as important is how we conduct ourselves on the personal level, that you and I know that that's true in policy and political work. It's true in everything, including as as you offer the great example of this wonderful employee at a gas station who is there during a pretty atrocious time of the day dealing with people who are in a hurry and, and not too happy until they have their caffeine. And for her to cause you and probably think about this hundreds, thousands of yeah. people over the years during her career to, to walk away smiling is really what we're missing in American civil society. It, it sounds oversimplify. But in fact, it really is that easy and simple.
1: Yeah, it is. It really is. And and it just takes a commitment to to do it. Uh, we, we talk about it in terms of kind of the therefore what, you know, we can have a lot of conversations about a lot of different things. But what are we going to do about it? How are we going to implement it? How are we going to apply it? How, how am I going to be a better neighbor, uh, a better friend, a better member of my community? Uh, you know, we often look at the big national pieces and there's always a lot of hand wringing about, you know, this or that. Um, but really, it's, it's what happens in our communities. Uh, we, we did a lot of work when I was at Sutherland Institute with uh, Scott Rasmussen. And mm-hmm. we published his book, uh, Politics Has Failed, America Will Not. And just this essence that it has always been the community that has led this nation. Always. The, the, yeah. the community and the culture lead and the politicians follow. Uh, and and whether that's the, the early battles uh, of the revolution that were all community-driven. I mean, uh, Bunker Hill, Road to Concord, Lexington, all of those were community. Uh, but you look at even things like civil rights. Uh, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947. 17 years later, Congress got around to doing meaningful civil rights legislation. Uh, even simple things. I, I, I love to give the example of Mother's Day. Uh Most people don't realize Congress voted against having a Mother's Day. I think it was like 22 times. How fitting. Yeah. I mean, that's like a no-brainer, right? If you're a politician, if the word mother is in the title of the bill, it's a pretty easy vote. But they didn't. They voted no. And this lovely woman from West Virginia who introduced the bill, of course, honoring her angel mother, she said, okay, Congress, forget about you. She went back to West Virginia, worked her tail off, passed it in the West Virginia State Legislature. They became the first to have an official Mother's Day. And then she went on to Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Vermont. And finally, when every state in the nation had passed a Mother's Day, then and only then did Congress boldly and courageously step forward and say, we shall have a Mother's Day. Uh, And so it's important for us to remember, again, that it's community and culture that lead and that the politicians will eventually follow uh, but if we don't lead in our own communities, if we aren't actively engaged in lifting up our, our brothers and sisters around us, uh, then, then we sort of get blown about by the, the winds of Washington, for sure.
0: You know, it's it's an instructive example, because it reminds us that the government has gotten too big. and And as I have said that over the years, especially in the last couple of years, I have said I, what I mean by that is not just to pick on government, certainly not to question the intentions of people who are there making the policy, even those with whom I disagree, as much as to say that when we as conservatives offer a critique of the American welfare state or the dependency state, and and, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, that what we're talking about is is that government has taken the place of the social relationships that each of us ought to have, providing for the the betterment of our brothers and sisters, and and we've really missed the boat as conservatives. I I, I tell friends and colleagues who are of, of similar perspective, that's on us. It's let's let's stop talking about the left being responsible for that. Yes,
1: uh, could could not agree more. And and I think it's it's interesting. There uh, a quote by a, a gentleman named Neil Maxwell said that as big government continues to fail. Uh, Sadly, it might be followed by a call for even more government. And thus more and more lifeboats will be launched because fewer and fewer citizens know how to swim. And so certainly the, the government, even the federal government, has a role to play. Um, my, my old boss, Senator Lee, uh, often liked to quote, uh, Lincoln in his address to con- Congress who talked about the role of government, that it was the role of government to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the path of laudable pursuit for all, to give all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. And so that means there is a, a small role for government to play there, but that's also giving great emphasis and great responsibility to each of us as citizens because it's it's that coming together i mean that is so american we 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 love to talk about american you know rugged individualism uh, but that's really not who we are uh, we like to have our individual liberty for sure but it's always been about coming together i mean you think of the old barn raising uh, the community came together and raised the barn not because anybody told them to go raise the barn and help their neighbors because their neighbor needed help and if you look at all the, you know, even the, the, the moonshot uh, was something that galvanized the nation and everyone looked at what can I do? What is my role in this story? Again, going back to that need for conservatives to put things in the contents of context of story and inviting people to be part of it. Everyone wants to be part of a story. Uh, if, if you look at many of the, the crises that we deal with, whether that's teen suicide or opioids, those are all crisis of, of loneliness, of being disconnected, of a crisis of, of meaning in our lives. And we, we have to recognize that it's in that coming together uh, that, that everybody benefits. And, and that's where we really start to solve a lot of these problems. The, the legislative fixes are often symptomatic, uh, but we've got to get to the root of the issue if we're really going to sustain things for the long haul.
0: Oh, it's, it's so true. It, I think about our, our policy staff here at TPPF that, of course, professionally, we need to be engaged in those legislative solutions. We're often very measured in the number of those that we advocate for, because we, we think that the the real proof in the pudding, the real work has got to be done outside our professional work. But the point is that we follow the lead of some other policy organizations. I think about what Randy Hicks has done at yes. the Georgia Center for Opportunity in trying to encourage our own staff. Of course, it's up to them. I mean, it, it's got to be a, a personal choice in order for it to be rewarding and meaningful that outside of their work. That they be, of course, really involved in, in civic affairs. And then we took that one step further, and I pass this along as an example, not to pat ourselves on the back here, that in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey, we granted a, a host of days off of work for our staff, if they wanted to, to go down to Southeast Texas and participate in the rebuilding of lives. I mean, it's the rebuilding of communities. Some of those staff said, well, Kevin, you know, what are, how, how is this going to translate into our policy work in Austin? And I said, I don't really know, but I do know that it's important we be down there and participate. We're gonna learn a lot from people on the ground. And, and in fact, it has informed our policy work in this way. It has reminded us that every white paper we write, every op-ed we pen, that we are doing that work, we're advocating for that policy, because there is a human person who will benefit from good legislation or suffer from bad legislation.
1: Oh man, that's, that's so true. Plus it, it gives an element of authenticity that is often lacking in in today's world. It's so easy to point fingers and place blame or uh, I always talk to it uh, in terms of we often just shrug our shoulders and say, well, it's not my job. It's not in my area. Uh, this doesn't fit our business model. And we shrug our shoulders. And, w- and what we really need in the nation is a, a heck of a lot less shoulder shrugging and a, and a whole lot more shoulders squaring, uh, the type you described, and going out and helping build lives, because that gives us authenticity. And I think we, we go through challenges and difficulties so that we can actually teach with authenticity, that we can proclaim principles with authenticity, that we can propose policy uh, with real authenticity. And that requires us to get our hands dirty, uh, and not just in terms of doing those kinds of projects, uh, but that also may mean just sitting with a neighbor who's lonely. That may be just reaching out to, to someone who you know is struggling.
0: Well, that's right. And and if we fail to do those things, then our policymakers are more likely to make some decisions that, that frankly, are bad. And beyond that, as you write about in a recent weekly column, we face a crisis of trust. And in, in fact, you say that people become more isolated, more tribal, and less likely to engage in meaningful dialogue if this foundation of trust is eroded. And you, you've touched on some of these themes in our conversation today. And so for our listeners, if you've been nodding your head as, as Boyd is, is talking very eloquently, I'd encourage you to read his weekly column at, at Deseret News. But Boyd, as we begin to wrap up, I, I just want to give you the opportunity to maybe discuss in, in a nutshell This argument that you've advanced in this weekly column and others about the crisis of trust and how that's connected to what you and I have been focused on today regarding the fabric of civil society. Yeah, And
1: I think that is the the real test, you know, uh, the trust in institutions, uh, government in particular, has has never been lower. And if we look at the kinds of things that we've experienced just in the in the last few weeks in the country, you've had an inspector general report come out and uh, cast all kinds of questions uh, about integrity, uh, about bias, uh, about insubordination uh, in an investigative matter. Uh, you've got the IRS targeting citizens based on religious or political belief. Uh, and you have a host of other things that are undermining fake news and, and the role of media uh, all of those things have undermined our confidence in, in our institutions, and and while that historically happens quite a bit as things go along, uh, the the bigger problem is as as you described, we're starting it's starting to fray at the fabric of society, and we're starting to lose trust in each other, which is the to me the real issue. You know, it used to be if you were asked the question, are your neighbors trustworthy? The response to that was always yes. I mean, that was always a 68%, 70%, absolutely, I trust my neighbor. Uh, now we are down to 22% of Americans who say, yeah, my neighbors are trustworthy. With millennials, it's even lower. It's 19% for, for millennials. And so that, that, to me, is the crisis of trust, because if we do begin to disconnect from one another, the, the institutions aren't going to matter in the end. Uh, this is a, an individual game. Uh, that we have to start from a position of trust, not from a position of distrust uh, or tribalism. That's that's where we end up with all the challenges we've been talking about uh, during the course of the podcast today. Uh, and again, it comes back to what is my responsibility for all of this, and, and our responsibility is to is to talk about the truth, to talk about the principles, and and to me that's the that's the real test. You know, I, I rarely agree with Oprah Winfrey, almost never, uh, when it comes to to political things. But she gave a speech down at USC to their journalism graduates uh, not long ago, and she challenged them to not just speak the truth. And I love that she said the truth, not your truth, which is kind of the uh, mm-hmm. uh, relativism uh, component for the day. But she said, "Speak the truth, defend the truth. the The truth." is something that both you know sheds light and it also condemns. It disinfects and it emboldens. And so we have to not only speak the truth, we have to be the truth. And so that's that's the challenge for each one of us. Uh, and I think that's where trust really begins, is as we get to the truth. Uh, I, I, had a, I had an experience just a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, I, it was one of those weeks where everything was going wrong and my weekly column had not been written. And I had, I had told my assistant Christian that, you know, I, I want to write about truth. I, I really want to get to this issue. And so I'd, I'd kind of teed it up that that's where I was going with the column. Uh, but as the day just kept ticking along and as the layout folks here at the Deseret News were trying to get the page put together, I finally had to just tell him, just save me a space, just put a, a fake header there and just, you know, my column's going to go there. And uh, I came back from one of my meetings and and sitting on, my desk was the, the layout for the next day's paper and it had everything on there perfectly positioned and down at the bottom was this space for my column and my assistant in big red pen said the truth will be written here. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's, that's my answer. I'm responsible for the truth. And I think we all have to do that. We all have some looking in the mirror to do to say, what am I doing to promote truth and trust? What am I doing to live my life with integrity to make a difference for the people I interact with? Uh, what, am I, what am I doing on social media? What am I doing as I talk to, with, or about my neighbors and colleagues and those who may be on the other side of an argument or the other side of a political debate? How are we doing that? Because it's up to each of us individually. Uh, and it is the out of many one that makes the nation great, but it requires each one To recognize the difference they can make. Never underestimate the power of one voice, of one person, of one act of kindness, of one kind word, uh, and the influence that that can have. Uh, It's immeasurable.
0: The ripple effect goes on and on and on. Well, Boyd, I'm glad that you mentioned what you just did because we often conclude each episode of the Foundation Podcast with my asking our guest, what advice do you have for our listeners? And I think you've given some excellent advice for our listeners, asking some questions that we really ought to be thinking about each day. And so I am sure that you have wet the whistle of a lot of our listeners. Where do they go in terms of website address to read more of your work?
1: They can go to deseretnews.com. That's uh, the main site there. You can go to the opinion pages. We're uh, always active there. Uh, We also are just launching a podcast, uh, which is called Therefore What?, Uh, And so people can tune in there and uh, we'll have you on uh, to talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, what's happening at the Texas Public Policy. So we look forward to that.
0: Well, thanks so much, Boyd. You're generous with your time. You're a great American. Thanks for joining us this week.
1: Thanks for having me. All the best.
0: You bet. Thanks for listening to the Foundation Podcast brought to you by the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Please don't forget to subscribe.